Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for coming to this, the latest, uh, part, uh, latest uh, episode, if you want, in our Contesting Europe series. Now, when I, I'm Damien Chalmers, I'm from the Lord of Parliament and organise this with Professor Sarah, Sarah Hobbot from the European Institute. When Sarah and I organised this series, one of the things we had to think about was the increase in radical politics that has been associated with both the politicisation of the European Union and the onset of the sovereign debt crisis. And there are few people better to talk about that than Professor Mabel Berezan. She is head of the sociology department at Cornell, having had academic posts at Harvard, UPenn and UCLA. Uh, associations read like a sort of a list of sort of prestigious universities where to go, where universities you should visit in the world. They include Yale, Stanford, NYU, uh, Surrey and Paris, and the EUI. Now, having started our initial work was on the emergence of fascism in Italy between the wars. She's perhaps best known in recent times for charting the link between European integration and the rise of the radical right. Particularly her book, Liberal politics in neoliberal times, culture, security, and populism in the new Europe. Um, she'll be talking today on that subject, and in particular, what we see with, if you like, what's happened, if you like, since the sovereign debt crisis. Talk, surprise, what surprise, the old new nationalism in post security Europe. She will talk for about 40 minutes. There's a, it's all on Twitter, well, you can follow it on Twitter at the hashtag. Elsie Berezan. I only have one thing more to ask, which is, please follow on Twitter, but please turn off your mobile phones. She will also take questions afterwards. I hope you will join me in welcoming, welcoming Mabel to the floor. Well, thank you, um, Professor Chalmers, for that lovely introduction. Um, it was extremely generous. Um, and um, I wanted to say I'm really delighted to be here uh, at LSE. And um, as I was telling Professor Chalmers, I actually began my European research career here many years ago when I came as a graduate student for a summer, actually to research a totally other topic. Um, so it, it's really nice um, to be back here. Um, what I'm going to talk about today, it is in, in a way everything that has happened um, since my, my last book on the subject of um, the European right. And I have to say that when I finished that book, I really thought that that was not just the end of my book, but I, my social science prediction uh, was basically that this was probably the end of the right. I finished it after our the extreme right. Um, and social scientists should never make predictions, uh, but then since a lot of uh, a much more um, renowned economists than I miss the debt crisis both in the US um, and in Europe, I don't feel so badly about having uh, missed that particular one. But once the debt crisis got started, um, it basically became clear to me that the right was coming back, um, and some would argue it's really gone away, um, and that I would actually need to go back and do some more work and, and rethinking of it. 
Um, and today what I'm going to speak of is the, the general contours of a new book project that I'm working on. So I'm going to begin with an image, and there are a lot of uh, pictures in this talk. And I, I couldn't resist this, uh, my own uh, introduction, okay. I couldn't resist this particular image. I assume many of you have seen it. It was on the cover of The Economist a few weeks ago. Um, and although I don't particularly agree um, that these parties are similar to the American Tea Party, I thought it was a, a, a nice picture with which to begin. It said, get you in the mood, at least, of thinking of the cast of characters that I'll be dealing with. So the first thing I'm going to do, since I'm going to cover a lot of territory in this talk, I decided to do a little mapping of, of the arguments that I'm going to make. Um, and basically, I, I'm going to try to make uh, to um, lay out here uh, the link between the, what I see as the link between the sovereign debt crisis and what I call the retreat to the nation. Um, and basically, I have a few propositions that I, are important, I think, to keep in mind. First, this notion that there is that um, the acceleration, what I'm calling the acceleration and the um, normalization of the nationalist right in contemporary Europe is a kind of collateral damage from the sovereign debt crisis that has basically exacerbated pre-existing fault lines in the European Union project. And those fault lines, I just I talk think about them, that is, if the, the Europe that the 1992 Maastricht Treaty formalized and the subsequent EM, European Monetary Union never really reconciled what I call the institutional emotional claims of the nation state with the structural demands of belonging to a supranational national political entity. In this case, in this, if one takes this position, then the sovereign debt crisis may be viewed as a tipping point that has exposed some of the cracks in the European infrastructure um, as well as its shaky foundations. Moving over to Europe, the nation and the right, I have a few points that I also want to lay out there. First of all, that the nationalist right didn't really end with World War II. And the, not, the right has been with us, if one looks historically, um, for the, the entire post-war period. Nas the second point is that national belonging and attachment has always been part of the European political experience. And that the third point is that sovereign debt crisis has provided an opening for right nationalist parties that already existed. Um, and it, the opening actually allowed some of these parties, not all of them, uh, to mobilize feelings that were already in place. So these are the kinds of issues that I hope to, that I hope that the points that I, I the, the data, the evidence I present tonight, tonight actually help to illustrate. So the organization of the talk is roughly in three parts. Uh, in the first part, I want to actually discuss some election, some recent elections in Europe that were viewed as, viewed as surprising. Um, and which I believe crystallized a discussion in the public sphere about a return to the politics of the 1930s. The second thing I want to look at is the contours of the European right as I see it developing. 
And then the last part of the, the talk, I want to ask and speculate as to why journalists and why do social analysts, from journalists to academics, write about and talk about the nationalist right as if it were a newly emerging political phenomenon. So this is the, the general lay of the land uh, for the lecture this evening. So let me begin. 2012. Uh, this is a period that um, it, it grabbed my attention as well as the attention of the, um, the public intellectuals and academics writ large uh, that I'm talking about. Uh, and basically I'm calling it a springtime of anxious and angry peoples. And basically what I want to, what I'm interested in are three elections that I've kind of recategorized as surprises, okay? And they are the first round one of the French presidential election, which happens April 22nd. Round two, not round two, sorry, the Dutch parliamentary dissolution, which actually people noticed less than the, the French election. Um, and then the third is the Greek parliamentary election, which is what really grabbed the attention in many ways of the international media. Um, after this election, after these three elections in that spring, there was a noticeable uptick in the international media, um, focusing attention on you know, questions such as are we returning to the 1930s? Uh, and I, I listed out here on the slide some of the headlines which were more or less typical of the kinds of journalism that one can find on this. And I don't have any citations to it, it was just a random <coughs> grouping of, of, of articles that, I, I mean, I, I have tons of these articles because it was so, um, so in vogue and continues to be in vogue um, to, to frame events in this way. So we have Golden Dawn, that's the Greek party, um, the Greek neo-Nazi party, uh, and the rise of fascism. Um, Europe on the verge of a nervous breakdown. Are we on the brink of repeating the catastrophe of the 1930s? Hitler who, again, this is about the Greeks. And actually, Paul Krugman, who's actually been doing a running commentary on Europe and the dangers of austerity since 2009, in the spring of 2012, writes an article, uh, three revolting, th those revolting Europeans, and actually says something positive about the uh, European voters. I'm not sure what he was thinking about exactly. Uh, <laughs> when you think about the Golden Dawn, but uh, but he is making a snide remark, uh, obviously, at uh, the continent's best and brightest, and he's actually turned out to be a uh, fairly Euroskeptic um, as, as the years have gone by. Um, so this is the, and if you doubt that these aren't just uh, some of my favorite um, articles that I found in my uh, computer file, I actually just recently did a, um, asked a research assistant to actually try to nail down for me numerically uh, this issue of what ha is there, uh, has there been a, a real um, rise uh, in newspaper, let me see if my pointer works. Uh, so we did a LexisNexis search, and I asked her to search on fascism, Europe, return of the 1930s, uh, and we had a little problem with it. I, I just did it last weekend, and when she actually did that, I told her to do it from 2000 to 2013, and you know, I don't know, those of you who've done LexisNexis searches, 
the search terms exploded and she got over a thousand articles and so we had to, Sherry find it and I, I think this is a bit of an underestimate but the trend is clear and I want to say something about 2002 but basically you get a little bump in 2006 but basically big uptick in 2009 decrease and then a steady steady uptick from 2010 uh, to today and I actually hypothesize but have no way of really knowing without looking at the articles but I think that one of the reasons there's a bump in 2002 was 2002 was the year that uh, Jean-Marie Le Pen head of the National <coughs> Front came in second place in the French presidential election uh, and there was a big media, international media outcry about the fact that he was probably, uh, this was probably the return of fascism. And, and obviously the return of fascism has a certain cachet as a, as a headline piece also. Um, but I think more interesting in a way than the, the, the in, uh, more telling in a way than the international uh, media or even some of the academic writing is the fact that it was in spring 2012 that you started to get recognition of the threat of, uh, of the extremists from very unlikely sources, and that is what I call official anxiety. So you get Herman von, I'm going to not say his name quite, Rompuy, President of the European Council, addressing the Romanian Parliament on April 25th, that's three days after the French election, um, and basically, I, I just, I'm not going to read every quote I put up here, but because you can see them, but basically nationalist and extremist movements are on the rise. Many of them blame Brussels for bad news. And then the invocation at the beginning that we have to work hard as politicians to somehow overcome these bad ideas that these people have of us. Um, so that's the first example. Uh, second one I really like is, is Italian and then Premier Mario Monti speaking at a forum of industrialists, I believe, on, on September 12th, 2012. 2012. Uh, we are in a dangerous phase, uh, and uh, he's worried about this form that uh, we were hoping to complete the integration. Instead, there is forming a dangerous counter-phenomenon, angry pop populism that aims at disintegration. And of course, it's totally ironic that Monty did not win the uh, got sort of booted out of office in, in the spring Italian 2013 uh, elections uh, and one of the major players in that election was the five-star movement of a totally anti-system and totally anti-out of the mainstream um, politician. Um, so basically this is the, the landscape of reaction as it were to that spring in 2012. And I want to actually now sh go and show you some of them, go in a little bit more um, in visual detail of some of these events. First of all, um, in the spring of 2012, I happened to be in Paris, and I happened to be there as um, Jean-Luc Jean Mélenchon started a uh, counter-movement, in part because he was uh, somewhat afraid of the rise or the um, salience of the front, the National Front. And second, also, it was a response to Hollande, who a lot of people felt at the time was a weak alternative to Sarkozy, or not sufficiently, um, was too similar to Sarkozy uh, to make a viable left candidate. Um, interestingly enough, I have some pictures from the, this um, thing. Uh, Mélenchon's, uh, one of their slogans, uh, this was a hastily assembled coalition of various left groups in France. 
Um, and their, their slogan was human first, and the slogan of the French National Front is France first. So they were consciously juxtaposing themselves against the, front, uh, against the ideology of the front. They were coming up with a kind of left alternative to, uh, to a lot of the um, issues that the front, the National Front was bringing to the fore. Uh, and to give you an example, the National Front, as you'll see, is very anti-Europeanization. Um, and one of their um, um, propaganda slogans was they said, the European Central Bank, an obstacle to ending the crisis. So basically, you have an, an anti-Europe position there. Um, and it was a rather amazing rally. This is a picture I took. I was very up clo very close to the, the uh, demonstrator. The, Ralliers, and there were about two or three hundred thousand people there, um, and it, it drew a lot of attention in the media. The people who went were basically young people, uh, and then very old people, basically people who were from the old French left, um, and there was a lot missing in between. Uh, and it got a lot of press, and then it turned out uh, the next day, four Jewish children were shot by a sort of random sniper. Not, not a, he, he, it was a deliberate uh, execution, but a random person, um, in, and basically all the new, into Toulon, and all the news shifted from um, Mélenchon. And interestingly enough, it, it, even though the two events had nothing really to do with each other, um, it's, it took some of the forward momentum away from his um, his. Um, his uh, party, which wasn't, as, as I said, which was hastily assembled to begin with. Um, the next, very quickly, uh, Marine Le Pen. This is Marine Le Pen on election night, 2012. And I always call Marine Le Pen the happiest woman in Europe now. And she certainly was happy on that night, and I'll show you why. Uh, because this is the statistics from the first round of the presidential election. And as you can see, all along with Sarkozy, uh, virtually identical the way they split the vote. Uh, and Marine Le Pen came in 17.9%. Uh, that was better than her father did um, in, um, in uh, 20, 2007, and even better than he did in 2002. Uh, and Mélenchon came in with 11.1%. Uh, the reason why I highlighted those in red was that if you actually add them up, you basically see that the extremes of the political spectrum, be they left or right, actually garnered more of the popular vote uh, than the mainstream political parties. Uh, there was also, of course, an abstention rate of 20%, which is not great. Um, this led to the dilemma, which is not so, un which is not uncommon in other parts of Europe. Uh, but I like this cartoon because it captures it. We have um, Sarkozy and Hollande basically at the Front National headquarters. The workers are on top and they're trying to court them for this, the second round of the election. Uh, and basically the workers are saying, we don't know who they are, we never see them. And this is actually a, 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 a problem um, moving going forward here. Uh, and then, of course, we have Hollande, who is actually on the cover of the left, Liberation, actually saying he has to figure out a way to court the National Front voters. And I think we know how well uh, he's been doing for the last two years. Uh, the last person, I'll just have a picture of him for the moment. In 2012, everybody thought Geert Wilders, the Freedom Party leader, was basically gone. Uh, and he was mainly known at that time for his... Um, 
Oh, he is mainly known for his strong anti-Islam um, um, positions, um, and I'll, I'll pass on that for the moment in the interest of time. I'll be coming back to him. This is the, the group that really, I, I think, really got people going, and that is the Golden Dawn in the Greek Parliament. And this isn't a neo-Nazi party. Uh, this, is the, this is the party members, uh, and it's, it's this party that actually got people talking more about the 1930s, more than what was, I think, more than what was going on in France. Although I'm certainly not the only commentator that has noticed that the extremes did better than the two mainstream parties. Uh, I just have to add this image. If those are the people in Parliament, those are the foot soldiers. These are the, the um, youth members of the Golden Dawn who are out training um, for, I'm not sure why in this particular image. Uh, but basically, this, these are scary people. Uh, and they have not um, gone away. Uh, so, what do these images basically tell us? I didn't just pick them at, at random. Uh, first of all, I think they visually convey a politically emergent and sometimes violent right. Uh, they also speak to a weak left alternative, which I think is a, a real problem in European politics. They also speak to a popular perception of a lack of differentiation among the leaders of mainstream parties. And even though I picked the Netherlands, France, and, and Greece for that, this particular um, show, um, these are basically, there are iterations of these case, uh, cases across Europe, other European countries today. So they're not unique to the cases that I, I picked. So I want to step back here and talk a little about what I call the trajectory of the European nationalist right. Because the events of 20, 2012 didn't really <coughs> just emerge from nowhere. Um, and I think that one could mark five stages, I and mean, one could argue about this, this periodization. Um, but let me just briefly go through this. First of all, up to the night, there were always right-wing parties in Europe. Um, they didn't end in World War II. Um, in 1980s, they, political scientists start talking about them more. They basically talk about them in terms of emerging xenophobia, anti-immigrant politics. Again, the French National Front is the party that most people talk about. It is the benchmark party. Um, in the, the last three points in red are, are, are trajectories that I've developed in my book, Illiberal Politics and Neoliberal Times, when I actually tried to do a historical analysis of mainly the French National Front. But you can, I argue in that book that you can begin to see in the 1990s a shift, not exactly away from immigration politics, but a shift towards Europe as a, as a focal point and as a point of, of dismay, basically. From 2000 to 2009, it becomes much clearer that, that, integration, that integration in Europe is a, is a concern and a much easier concern uh, to put forth um, because unlike saying I don't like immigrants where you're saying you don't like a particular group, you can say you don't like this, this sort of amorphous entity called Europe, and it's much more acceptable, and I think some of the electoral success of, of right parties, particularly the French party, 
had to do with this more legitimate discourse. Uh, and then lastly, the beginning of the debt crisis and, and where it really started taking off in 2010 and what I call normalization. From that point, I see a couple of things that have characterized European, what I call post-crisis Europe. Um, first of all, there has, initially there was a push to a center right and an even weaker left. And the 2009 parliamentary elections were one example of that where the left did really badly. Uh, we have the 2014 European elections coming up, and as the votes for those elections are often protest votes, in other words, the, the abstention rates are really high on European parliamentary elections, so the, the people who actually go out and vote in them, people really care about some issue that they're trying to, to push. And right now, 2014, um, looks dubious in part because um, the, the right is, is coalescing around it and, and, and anti-Europe platforms around it. So the first characteristic is this declining left. Let's just, let's just agree on that and, and we'll just say a push to the center right. The second is this emergence or, or salience, I like that term better, extreme right. And then the third thing that has characterized like, European politics um, in the post-crisis period is popular mass mobilizations against austerity. And all of these will uh, figure uh, in my wrap-up as to why I think these issues are why I think this surprising events happen. What I'd like to do now is actually just turn to when I talk about, um, I, I'm making an argument that there's a connection between the right and uh, the European debt crisis. So I'd like you to, I'd like us to look at this table. Um, I, it's based actually on a database that I put together with a graduate student of every, uh, mainly Western European right-wing party from 1970 to um, 2012. Um, there were 181 elections in the database. Uh, for reasons of visual clarity, uh, I only pulled out five, uh, and, and there are reasons why I picked those. Um, but the general chart looks a lot like um, um, what I have here, basically parties in existence having very small percentages of the votes. I call the uh, 1980s period the beginning of neoliberalism. You get a beginning acceleration in France. Integration, European integration accelerates. You get um, Netherlands comes into the picture. Um, you have um, Sweden, I'm sorry, Sweden, where you wouldn't expect to find one of these parties. Uh, so you get sort of an upward, a loose upward curve there. Uh, <coughs> down here, um, then we get up to 2,000. More people are in that, the, the percentage isn't as high, but more people are here in the um, going upwards. Uh, and then the really weird kind of a, a set of elections, when the crisis begins, you get in 20, um, uh, you get new entries, as it were. I mean, if you, if you think of France as a kind of stable and benchmark figure of the European right, then Sweden, Finland, Greece, and the, ne the Netherlands, Netherlands so is an in-between case, are certainly new entries. Um, and what I want to show with this, in addition to that upward slope, um, is basically that if you look at Finland, 19% for the true Finns in 2011. Sorry if I'm not, if I'm not managing my light sticker. 
Um, but look, no, absolutely no, no 1.6, 4.0, virtually nothing. Even this is a French legislative election, a little bit more complicated story here, uh, 13.6 in 2012, way up from 07. Uh, Greece is the most interesting case because when analysts, uh, and there are lots of political scientists who write on right-wing parties, when they wrote about, when we were doing our data collection, we were basically writing about this party, Laos. They had absolutely nothing. They totally dropped out in, in, in um, 2012. And um, here you have uh, the, the Golden Dawn, which had been around since 1980, suddenly gets 7% of the vote. Uh, Netherlands in 2012, uh, Wilders, kind of, who was the leader of the French, the party for freedom, drops out. Sweden is another one of these cases. Basically, nothing, 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 and then suddenly an uptick. And that's the point of why I'm showing you those numbers, because what I'm trying to show you is the relative uptick rather than the absolute um, presence of these people. Okay. Another phenomenon starts happening at the same time that the, we're getting this uptick in the um, uh, presence of the right, and that is heads of state begin to start talking about multiculturalism, but not in a positive way. So in October 2010, we get Angela Merkel telling a gathering of youth members of the Democratic Union that Germany's attempt to build a multi multicultural society had failed, utterly failed, and that actually went all through the international media when she said that. David Cameron, in 2011, was actually addressing the Munich Security Conference. I don't have an exact quote from him because I couldn't actually nail it down, but he said a very similar thing, that um, basically he was giving a lecture on Islamic extremism and suddenly multiculturalism was a bad thing. And Sarkozy, a president at the time of France, uh, able to, couldn't resist, didn't want to be left out of the action, as it were, so he too came in and said multiculturalism was really bad. Now, what's interesting about this is that this conjuncture, 2010, 2011, you're starting to see what I call parallel movements, basically a scrambling of political rhetoric. Um, nationalists appeals to identities and practices, they're not new. But you normally didn't hear heads of state actually making these appeals, and especially heads of state that were committed to the European project. They have typically not led the national identity charge, and criticisms of multiculturalism often came from the right, not the center right, not or the left. Rightists, and I have a flip thing here, began talking like leftists when they were not talking about multiculturalism or Islam. And you start to see a, very, a much more clear shift in public rhetoric, right-wing public rhetoric and persuasion, a shift from identity politics to what I call economic populism. And let me give you an example here. Um, basically, uh, we have uh, Timo Swani, head of the True Finns. Uh, and I, again, for time reason, I don't want to read every part of this, but at the risk of being accused of populism. It is not the little guy who benefits. And then he goes on. He talks about the old vision of Europe, uh, the, the peace vision of Europe. Uh, and he says, this is a Europe worth having. So it was great distress that I see the project being put in jeopardy by a political elite who would sacrifice the interests of Europe's ordinary people in order to protect certain corporate interests. 
And one of the things I, I really find fascinating is that the Wall Street Journal has given a platform to a lot of these right-wingers in the last uh, um, uh, two years, and I'm not exactly sure why. Uh, 2011, we get Marine Le Pen suddenly talking about economic patriotism and social patrimony. Uh, this is when she has become invested as head of the, uh, the Front National. She talks about in, in the French presidential election of 2012, our choices will be binary. It'll be against globalization, that is deregulation, alignment with the lowest social bidder, demographic subversion, the dilution of the values of our civilization, the choice would be the nation. Uh, she always needs American-style market economy when she talks about globalization, but you see her blending both the old nationalist discourse with the economic populism. So basically what I see, what I would argue is ha happening is that one, one of the things I showed in my book that, um, that you could see 9-11 actually gave a certain legitimacy um, to the claim that immigrants were dangerous. Um, and now the sovereign debt crisis is giving a certain legitimacy to the popular claim that Europe was dangerous. And all of these claims were floating around. They didn't just come from nowhere, but suddenly the events sort of came upon them uh, that made it sort of okay to say this. And this is basically what I call the normalization of the right. And that is the analytic term that captures <coughs> the twin phenomenon of the electoral science of the European right and the mainstream of nationalist ideas, languages, and, and practices. So, and I'm moving into the third segment of this talk. I hope I'm doing okay on time. Oh, good, okay. What is the surprise of the, of the title? And why do I think there were surprises? So, given that I tried to describe here very quickly uh, the tendencies that were in place arguably from the late 1990s, and which accelerated since the sovereign debt crisis began in 2000, spring 2009, then it is really a question of why did analysts from public intellectuals to established scholars view the elections of spring 2012 as surprising? And I have five, uh, three, with some subheadings, um, Answers is too strong, but but um, what I call here conceptual and pragmatic fault lines um, that I think various groups of public commentators <coughs> staked positions around, which in which made it difficult for them to see um, some of the things that I'm trying to argue have been going on for a long time. So. Let me just, I'm going to go through all of them again with, with visual examples. Um, let me start with what I call the analytic form of conceptual fault line. First of all, um, the discussion of immigration that had actually moved from letting people into the country, which had suddenly gone from a right-wing discourse to actually a pretty main, most national states now are, have been having policies around curbing immigration for a very long time. And most of the public discourse had gone from immigration to integration um, and multiculturalism. That there are visions of Europe that different groups held that were in conflict. There, was in, there were institutional rigidities, namely a durable national state. 
And there were extra institutional factors, such as a, a sort of um, uh, what I'm calling the power of political mood, and I characterize that as volatility, apathy, and sometimes despair. Let me go to the, the um, um, issue of immigration first, because I'm not going to talk about that. I mean, it's the factor I'm going to give the least weight to. Uh, and I will only say that immigration is that I, I think immigration and the, and the um, success, as it were, of right-wing parties is one of those things that we like to call necessary but not sufficient. Um, and it's an issue whether the, immigration would be an issue whether there were right-wing parties or not. Uh, but one of the interesting, I, I took these visuals because I think they, they show a very important um, uh, um, visual of how the story of immigration has changed. This is from, uh, or the fact of immigration. Uh, this is uh, SOS Racisme, 1985, was a French organization. The, as the National Front seemed to be getting, um, uh, well, it was getting electoral votes, and immigration was one of their big issues. This organization found, was founded, it still exists, it has outposts in other European countries. And its, its motto, it was basically defense of immigrants, and its motto was don't, don't touch my, hands off my buddy, essentially. Um, and one of the reasons I like, the, uh, these are images from their website, is that basically the, the discussion at that point was, a, was between individuals. It's, it's the two hands grasping together, it's my buddy, it's, it's and, 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 a, and a vision of, of um, immigration that's focused on in, individuals is basically a vision that's focused on numbers, who comes into the country, who doesn't. It's the, I think this is as good a symbol of the, the shift in immigration discourse, both from the point of view of the, of the state and from immigrants themselves. I, this is Don't Touch My Profit, and I, this is from a, a, there was a demonstration in Paris on September 13, 2012, and it was at the time when we didn't really know very much what had happened in Benghazi, and basically it was at the U.S. Embassy, and it was basically a, a sort of defense of Islam against uh, both Paris and the United States. But I think what, what's interesting to me and why I picked up the image is because in a very visual way, it shows a whole different way of thinking about uh, the problem of immigration and the meaning of immigration um, in a country. So I think that that, that is a, a whole different entity from what the right had originally been talking about. Um, moving on to the visions of Europe, Whose continent is it anyway? Uh, why this is important uh, is because most of the people I'm talking about here are decision makers in some way or other. And I think there really are three different um, universes of political discourse uh, that people constantly invoke vis-a-vis -vis Europe. And I, I just characterize them as normative, idealistic. We have Habermas's constitutional patriotism, <coughs> Daniel Convedi, editorial page of the New York Times is talking for pan-European union, talking about people power. This is very idealistic giving on the ground realities. Then we have a more rational bureaucratic approach, the Europe of Brussels, and I just took this quote 
um, from the, this is uh, Jean, Jean Tichot, who's the director of Carnegie Europe, and he's writing the great European battle between necessity and identity. This was just a couple of days ago, and basically the, he's talking as though Europe is a kind of um, problem of political will of the individual citizens, as though there's something wrong with them. Uh, and then we have Hollande at the 50th anniversary of Charles de Gaulle's speech to German youth. He's in Germany at the time speaking, and he's giving the traditional World War II vision of Europe. Europe is not simply institutions, procedures, juridical texts. They are necessary. Europe, generation after generation, is the most beautiful political project that we can imagine together. And this is hardly um, the way anything seems to be going. So what's important about these different things, and, and a lot of times when you, if you follow the threads, and I'm sure most of these discourses you are all familiar with, is it, it sometimes not only doesn't seem it, it almost seems like people are in, aren't, um, they aren't even talking about the same continent, uh, let alone one rarely sees these groups in the same room together. Um, let me move on to the issue of the national, the, the durable nation, the institutional thing. And I like this slide. This is from a Pew study, uh, European Unity on the Rocks, May 2012. It didn't take into account the elections. I, I think this is like, it's just, well, if you have any doubts about who's going to help who and bail out who in the sovereign debt crisis, I just think this is such a... It does seem everybody thinks Germany is very moral and uh, nobody seems to very much like Italy and how does Britain do since we're in Britain? Britain, they, 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 they don't like Greece or Italy, I guess, except for vacation or something. So at any rate, um, Greece and Italy do really badly uh, and your pre the national prejudice is sort of depending on where, where you are. Uh, of more interest the same year, again, if you want to look at it in numbers and not, um, and not uh, political, not social, cultural stereotypes, again, uh, as you can see, nobody much seems to like the EU or thinks the, Europe, the, the Euro or the central bank is favorable, except uh, some of the countries that did well, I think mean, Italy and, and and Greece, uh, Germany like, seems to like uh, just about everything, um, or maybe not, but at, at any rate, um, and then uh, they basically you have the things going the way you would expect. Uh, again, I'm doing this just for a visual. A lot of my graphs, I just want you to see these lines coming downward, and if anybody wants to look at a particular graph, we can go back and look at it. Uh, but down, 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 who do you trust? Um, basically, the national parliament, the national government, you get an uptick in, a slight uptick, because basically everybody's going down. Um, uh, but the EU, the, the EU, um, sorry, the European Union is going down, 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 down. Um, they're doing, faring the worst. Um, and if things weren't bad enough, basically, uh, the huge research project a year later, May 13, 2013, now has entitled their, their annual survey, The New Sick Man of Europe, the European Union, and you never want to be compared to the Habsburg Empire, so that's not particularly good. Uh, and again, you see everything going down, 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 including in uh, Spain and France and Greece, so the countries in which they had a, a better view of the EU. And worse, I think, than this slide, uh, is political leadership between 2012 and 2013. Nobody seems to like their leaders anymore except maybe Poland. Um, so basically this is uh, not a, a happy picture. 
Um, what I want to argue, the reason I've shown these slides, is that I basically, what I think it points to is what I call a durable nation state. And I think that a lot of, uh, of analysts have underestimated uh, and politicians, the power of political and, cu and cultural institutions in which we've been embedded. Um, and identity, when people talk about identity, it's not a term I really like very much because it sounds somewhat superficial. And identities, I think, are deeper. They're embedded in institutions. And the law gives us identities. Citizenship gives us identities. Pay some taxes, and you'll really feel that you're identified with the state. You may not like it, but you'll feel it. Maybe Europeans like to pay taxes. Americans really hate paying taxes. <laughs> uh, and practices actually embed us in the national state. Language, common language, <coughs> schooling, and even religion, and the laws about religion or not about religion. So I actually prefer the term national experience, and that is the term, the point, where individual biography meets collective biography in history. And I think it's something that is, is that people sort of refer to far more than these kinds of um, superficial or these, some notion of an identity out there. The last thing I want to look at is political mood. And I just have two slides to illustrate that. Because and to some extent, if there's anything that evokes that, that one should be concerned about if one wants to think about the 1930s, it's political mood. And mood is a very difficult thing uh, to capture and to show a picture of. Uh, but basically, I have I have a whole archive of these. Um, but basically, they all look something like this. This is the Dutch uh, parliamentary elections. The reason I have this picture again, the lines are going in every which way direction, and I have about 20 of these for very, for all national states in Europe. And if you want to see volatility, you can talk about volatility and look at numbers. But when you look at a picture like that, and the lines just don't make any sense. Um, you're, that is uh, volatility in the electoral sphere. Another place where there's volatility is in what um, actually Mary Calder is called subterranean politics, and that is some of the, the um, um, movements against austerity, and there, there's a sense in a lot of these of, of a kind of rejection without an alternative. And I took this picture, this was a, 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 a strike against austerity in Paris 2010, it's a euro, and it's a picture of, um, I thought at the time it was a long, but I, now I'm having anybody want to identify that politician, but it, it, it's Sarkozy, and it basically says, get out, the euro is worthless, and so are you. Um, so that is the landscape of Europe. Where are they now? Where it's happened since spring 2012? Well, Wilder's electoral fortunes are improving. He's uniting with Marine Le Pen to join anti-Europe, win a joint anti-Europe strategy for the May 2014 European parliamentary elections. 19 months after taking office, Hollande is the least popular sitting president, French president, even exceeding Sarkozy's numbers. Uh, last week, he had a 21% confidence rating. Marine Le Pen is, is and her party is anticipating doing quite well in the March municipal elections, and the Golden Dawn is still with us. A more concern is this language of mixing, again, the economic populist language. And here we have Marine Le Pen, solidarity with the victims of fiscal injustice and of Eurosterity. And she changed her, pro her profile picture on her webpage. I love this picture, actually. It could be a picture from the left, if you didn't know it was a picture from the National Front. 
again, the numbers on Marine Le Pen, for many years, the perception of the Front National as dangerous had been declining. There's a slight uptick here, and I like this chart. They've been doing it since 1983. Um, what I like about this chart is it actually gets at perception rather than who's actually winning the votes. And I think it's, it's interesting um, that there's a slight uptick now um, in um, Marine Le Pen's uh, perception. Uh, which these suggest to me that they think she can actually, the French think she, think she can do well. Uh, Geert Wilders, uh, the left, he was actually in Los Angeles June 9th, 2013, at a conference on Europe's last stand. He is giving a talk called The Resurgence of National Pride. Look at the three things that he's concerned about. Uh, he's, he's never given up on Islamization but he wants to restore national sovereignty and more importantly, they do not want their money, this is what European, ordinary people in Europe want, to be used to pay for mistakes made elsewhere. So there goes the bailout. And the latest figures on him too, are he's doing much better and there's a, PVD is his party, uh, and there's uh, some talk of the fact that he may actually be able to join um, a Dutch coalition uh, government. So basically, what I've been arguing here is that in Europe, Europeanization has opened the door in many ways to the right. Competing visions of the meaning of Europe, the durability of nation states, and a volatile political mood have created a favorable climate for the nationalist right and have managed to thrive, that have managed to thrive sufficiently under the policy and media radar screen so to, as to appear to have emerged out of no right, nowhere. But the handwriting was on the wall long before 2012. And one of the things that I have developed is this concept of what I call post-security polity. And what I mean by that is that the expanding European project was a project of plenty, not of scarcity, and scarcity is emerging on a global scale. In other words, there's a, a subtextual argument I'm making here that absent the crisis, we wouldn't be talking about these parties because when things are going well, there's really no reason to be anti-Europe. Um, scarcity in a supranational polity such as the EU threatens the practical and institutional security. I want you to think of welfare, linguistic and cultural similarity that the new European nation states provided in the post-war period. <coughs> The old forms of security are disappearing in Europe and elsewhere and creating a post-security polity where scarcity and not plenty is the norm. The collective reaction to the post-security polity is that <coughs> national protection overrides European solidarity and promotes a resurgence of the nationalist right, again, depending on the historical specificity of particular national states. I can't think of a better, in, in thinking of the 1930s and, and where we're at and where we're going next, or what the future holds for us, I really can't think of a better way to end this talk than to a uh, quote from um, John Maynard Keynes in The Economic Consequences of Peace. Um, and he's actually, he's obviously talking about Versailles. And, uh, and he says, we, this, and his concern about the, the um, the payments, he said, we may still have time to reconsider our courses and to view the world with new eyes. For the immediate future, events are taking charge, and the near destiny of Europe is no longer in the hands of any man. The events of the coming year will not be shaped by the deliberate acts of statesmen, 
but by the hidden currents flowing continually beneath the surface of political history of which no one can predict the outcome. In one way only we influence those hidden currents by setting in motion those forces of instruction and imagination which change opinion. I don't really have an answer to what's going to happen next, obviously, in Europe. Um, but I do know, without some instruction and imagination, right-wing parties, nationalist right, whatever label we wish to apply to them, will not need a particular political strategy. They'll only need to show up. Thank you. Thank you. That was, that was absolutely fantastic. We've got about half an hour for questions. Um, if I just... And there's a, there are roving mics around. We'll take them if it's okay in groups of three. So, gentlemen, just there. If people could identify that, or if they want to, if they, people identify themselves, that would be nice. Sir. My name is Matthew, I'm a former student here at the LEC. Um, I had a question about Git Builder's alliance with uh, Marine Le Pen. Previously, he'd been very careful to keep his distance from more extreme far-right parties, <coughs> and yet he seems to have shifted now with this alliance with Marine Le Pen. So I was just wondering if you could give me your thoughts on that. Should we, should we just take a, take well, a couple of questions? Actually, I need to get them there. And um, just a question over there. Carl Levy, Goldsmiths. Um, I think, being pedantic, I think there is an upsurge in the, uh, the right in, in the late 60s, early 70s, and then it disappears, which is an interesting point. But 68, you see the rise of the right or around mid-60s in Germany and certainly in Italy, and in the United States, George Wallace and, and the Nixon Southern strategy. So that's one point. The other point I wanted to make was, if I can be counterintuitive about all of this, um, I do think... Um, that um, if you look at UKIP, for instance, which is supposed to be anti-Europe, actually the biggest thing, if you actually look at what people are talking about, if you dig into the polls, it's really immigration more than Europe. And also this general feeling of some nostalgic Europe, uh, British past. So it's a bit more complicated. I think Europe becomes a kind of catalyzing agent for lots of different things. But I'm not sure if Europe is that is really that important for the voters, to be honest with you. And the third point, what about Germany? I mean, Germany is the biggest country in Europe. Germany was the place where the Nazis came from. We're going to talk about the far right. And in many ways, Germany is quite stable. I mean, even the anti-European the anti movement that arose in the last election is, you know, probably wouldn't be allowed even to the Tory party. They're very, you know, moderate. There's nothing really serious there. So, I mean, I'm, I'm being counterintuitive here, but I'm not sure if the whole thing holds together that well. I think they're, they're kind of variations that you just going to skate over. Yeah. I'll take one more question just to the, the front here, in the very front. Just, just here. Sarah Hobel, the European Institute. Thank you for, for a great talk. I, just following up on that question, uh, you know, listening to your talk, you would sort of think that you know, if I'm going to exaggerate a bit, that, you know, we're sort of near the end and the far right is taking over. And, and I just want to pick up on one point. You said that absent the crisis, we wouldn't be talking about these parties. But as you also showed, in fact, there was really quite a distinct rise of the far right when the economy was doing quite well. If we pick sort of a set of different parties, perhaps, well, 
Front National was one with in 2002, as you mentioned. We also saw Ged Wilders doing really well, even before there was a crisis with his Islamophobia. And we saw in Scandinavia, you know, the Progress Party, the <coughs> Danish People's Party, the Truth. I mean, these were parties that did very well without the crisis. So this sort of leads me to, to my first question is how, you know, how do these parties really need a crisis to do well? I'm not doubting that they'll do well in the European Parliament elections, partly because that's where voters can protest, but is it really true that we can sort of say it's because of the crisis that they're doing so well now? Didn't we see that beforehand? And then just the second point is you've shown, you said, oh, it's going down, 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 you know, no one likes Europe anymore. But we could have picked a different set of statistics that would have shown a different story. One story here is that if you look within the Eurozone, there has been no drop in support for the Euro. If you ask Europeans in the Eurozone, who do you think is the most effective institution at managing Uh, the crisis, then we see that this is the EU across every country in the Eurozone. So, and there's been no drop in that either. So that shows a sort of split thing. On the one hand, yes, people don't have so much trust in the EU, but on the other hand, they seem to still think that this is the institution that's going to solve their problems ultimately. So this, this is just questioning this thing about this sort of, the, yes, of course, the nation state is durable, but are Europeans also thinking perhaps it's not sufficient? Do you want to, I don't know if you want to respond that. Well, there are a lot of questions here. <laughs> uh, let me try to answer some of them. Um, cause, uh, and I've heard a lot of these before in different ways. So um, let me, the, the easiest one basically is the alliance with Le Pen, the builders one. And um, basically, have you, if you follow um, what Marine Le Pen has been saying for the past, uh, I don't know, um, basically four years or so, her goal when she took over the party was actually to move it away from her father's rhetoric, uh, provocative rhetoric. Now, there's been a, a big debate about, you know, is this real? Is she just saying nice things, but she's basically the same person her father was. Um, but I, I think if you actually look at their positions, she basically has a protectionist, workerist position. Um, and, and the statistics in France right now um, basically show a lot of attraction and people say they're going to vote who argued and never voted for the Front National before. So I guess my answer to your uh, question is um, aside from the fact that you should really never pay that. <laughs> Everything any politician says is always theater for what they've, you know, whatever it is they're doing. So whenever I do my analyses, I always feel like I'm working at a meta level. Um, but the, the issue um, is that I, I think it was, it's, it's really very easy for somebody like Builders at this point to join forces with Le Pen because basically they're on the same page on many issues. And you know, Le Pen is Marine Le Pen is totally sort of walked away from the early front national of her father. You know, the man who said um, the gas chambers were a detail of the history of World War II. I mean, that is just not part of the the front national official rhetoric. I, I can't promise you that there isn't some village in France or some front nationaliste there, you know, doing horrible things. But basically. Okay, let me move to the, um, the other question about, as I covered multiple things. First of all, one of the things that I did say in the talk um, is that even though I'm talking at a general level, that there are specific national iterations of, of basically 
national specificities of each one of these cases so that it's a, it's a very difficult um, path to tread when you start talking about this. Um, but let me, um, the 60s and 70s, um, I'm not sure I, I exactly know what you, what you mean about the 60s and 70s. I mean, there was the MSI in Italy, um, and I knew, what? MPD in Germany. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The highest point for them until, you know, the 80s. Maybe yeah. the MSI until the 90s. Yeah, yeah. And then the MSI morphed into a... Um, but I, I think the difference, you know, I think the difference that I would argue between that period and this period, and I, I really would have to think about it because there was a, a, an issue of West European politics that came out in the early 80s, and it, um, it was like a survey of the European right, and it was a kind of um, odd issue for West European politics to devote itself to the European right then because it seemed like there was no European right. And I remember when I was looking for my book and I was looking at that, it seemed a little quaint because most of those parties just weren't there anymore. So I think it's an issue of valence, and, and I think that a lot of these parties that you're referring to, a lot of people saw them as you know, extremist, bomb-throwing types of people, and therefore you know, were basically, they, some of them were put in the same category as some of the extremists leftist parties like the Bergata Rossa and the Bader Meinhof and that kind of thing. So I, that's not really an answer, but I, I think it's probably is a question of valence. And I don't know what to say about George Wallace, except that I started out by saying I don't think these parties are the same as the American Tea Party, and maybe I can tell you why at the end of the, um, of the hour or something. Um, let me just go to England. England is interesting to me because it's, and I don't, I have to confess I don't know that much about it because it's, it's, a, it's a new sort of salience, as it were. Um, but I would had always assumed that you really wouldn't see this kind of a party in England. And I find some of the, the, the discourse unusual, but I don't have a story about England now except the, the anti-Europe thing. It, it almost seems like it's playing catch-up. It's actually talking about things that these other parties were talking about in an earlier period. What about Germany? Um, there's probably a longer answer to this, but the shorter answer is I really think that in the case of Germany, the past protects. And um, now, what, ha what will happen when people with the living memory of the past and people who were the, grew up in the 1950s who had, were the children of people with the living memory, when that generation is gone and that past isn't there anymore? You know, it's an open question, but I think for the moment, and and there is a, a whole um, the German constitution actually forbids the constitution of Nazi or right parties. So. Uh, I think that was your three parts. Oh, and now the next question I had three parts about it. Um, do they need a crisis? Um, I think they need something to do really well. <laughs> I don't think they need a crisis. They, and, and I mean, obviously, they were gathering votes. That's what all my data shows, and I'm sure that's what that's what all the data shows. Um, but I think they need some kind of a catalyst to make ordinary people. There's such a, a perception against these parties as you know, people you wouldn't vote for, parties of hate, etc. Um, 
that there are two forced things going on. One, I think some of these parties want to be mainstream. They want to get into the, they don't want to be anti-system parties. They want to be part of the system. Uh, so they're changing a lot of their focus and making it much more, um, you know, it's, nationalism isn't necessarily a bad thing, and they're just emphasizing that, uh, toning down on the xenophobia. Um, and as I said, when I talked about the scrambling of rhetoric, so a lot of the, the people who are actually in power are, are, are talking about some of the same things. So do they need a crisis? It probably helps. Um, and it probably will help them get more votes. I mean, I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens in, in um, May at the European elections. Um, I, I don't want to predict any more than, than and no one should be predicting. But uh, if I had to guess, I'm, I'm watching Marine Le Pen really closely. Uh, I want to see to what extent she's really made this transformation. She's really a gifted politician. I didn't talk very much about political talent, but she certainly has it. Um, oh, this is an interesting point about the, the Euros. I, I know that statistic about the people think that the, um, Euro, the Euro institutions are the most effective way of solving the crisis, and yet on the other hand, nobody seems to trust the EU. So I, I think that's the point you were making. I, I know that statistic. I think it's really interesting. I don't have an explanation for it. It is a contradiction, obviously. Um, and I, I, I should probably, when I actually write this, put that in and at least say something about it, but I don't have anything more to say about it now than I, I admit that it's a contradiction. But I think it's one of those contradictions that actually speak to the issue of mood and volatility that I find of concern and that one of the reasons I showed all those lines going up and down, and as I said, I have an, a visual archive of these, just um, is that it's, it's, it can't be good for politics in the normative statement to have so many, to have a, a populace, a voting populace, have so many different kinds of contradictory political opinions, mood shifts, voting for different people, and and the only sort of um, sort of alternative voice, or mo or social mobilization voice, just expressing a kind of um, dismay at the situation, but having no alternative. So it's kind of a normative answer to what you're saying. Okay. And take first the question over there. Yeah, I'm just wondering, uh, what's the correlation between the economic losers from the financial crisis and these uptick in the right wing? I, 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 so could you speak up a bit, please? Well, what's the correlation between the people who lost in the austerity or in the financial cri after the financial crisis and the rise of the right? I mean, is there any correlation that those people who lost most voted more for these parties, or is that not the case. Do we know anything about that? And if we could next take the question right at the very back. Um, well, I'm a student here and I'm non-European, so forgive me for my ignorance. Um, in one of your slides you mentioned that the institutions and the cultural norms define the mindset of a society, if I'm not mistaken. Um, when I look at the EU as an outsider, um, I would like to ask you that whether the EU is really a worthwhile project, 
we always mention crises. We are always talking about uh, disparities. Um, and if it is su succeeding or successful enough, then what is the factor, uh, despite the heterogeneity, uh, what makes it function or work? Thank you. Thank you. One more, one more question. I suppose I want to go to the gentleman who I pulled the mic away from. So just uh, a little bit in front. Oh, okay. In that case, we'll come back to you. Uh, okay, then keep get, get the, the stewards working. So right in the very front. Uh, I'm a visiting fellow here at the European Institute. Uh, I just want to hear your views. You know, how can how can you extend your analysis uh, to the moderate right-wing parties, like like the case of the UMP in France, like Union Vendée Populaire? Because we all know that, you know, starting from um, 2005, into the year 2005, you know, all these uh, reports, etc., you know, just told us the story of a lebanisation des esprits, like the extremization of, extremization of, like, dramatization, like, right-wing um, shift in French politics. Like, how can you extend this? Because we all know that, you know, then the extreme right-wing parties are just one particular like dimension of the problem. We also know that in this, at the center of the uh, political spectrum, we also have extreme right-wing views. Like, you know, then Sarkozy was the one, you know, that, like was, he was pro-European. In fact, he was the most pro-European of French politics, except like the head of the UDF of the time, Beirut. But he was also the one who just expulsed, who sent, who just, who just organized the expulsion of the Roma people. Like, you know, then, then how can you just extend your analysis to, to, to comprise the central right-wing parties like the French UMP? Thank you. Now what you want to, oh, I don't know if right. you want to come um, back. You know, in a talk like this, it sounds like um, there are more elections than we're absolutely talking about. I mean, I'm talking about 181 parliamentary elections from 1970 in Europe. Uh, this is addressing the question of the correlations between did the, the losers of, I, uh, of, of the crisis vote more for these parties. Um, I think it's a very, um, basically what you really need is voting data from each one of the elections that I'm talking about of, of you know 20 of that I actually the five elections I guess you could say that I put out there um, what I do know and I knew more from France basically um, is that Marine Le Pen has been picking up a lot more working class voters and this is that's why I was showing those slides about the, the center right that you're talking about trying to court um, those voters um, there have been political scientists in France who have studied this exactly what you're asking and have written after, um, certainly after the 2012 elections, uh, that oh, it's the same old constituency that has always voted for these people, basically the old, the rural people who sort of have a looking backwards approach. That it's not necessarily that they're losers of globalization, they're just sort of recidivist <laughs> citizens. Um, I, I think the answer isn't in yet, and I think we need to look more carefully at um, how the constituents, who's actually voting for these parties and how that's changing. 
Um, and not only how it's changing in, a, in an aggregate level, but um, because the aggregate, aggregate um, statistics can uh, sort of betray um, more um, interesting sectoral changes. One thing that I noticed, and there's just no way to actually quantify this, I had gone to a French National Front, uh, they have an annual celebration um, in 1998, that's when I first started working on the current European right, and then I went again in 2005, and in, in 1998 I was kind of odd, you know, I looked like an outsider, I hung around with the press corps because I looked more like the press corps. Uh, when I went in 2005, and this is always bad because none of my French friends will come with me, so I have to go by myself. And so I tried to sort of think about what a French National Front woman would look like based on what I saw the last time, which is a lot of, it's in bad clothes basically, but anyway, so, <laughs> <laughs> provincialism, so country people. So this time I went and I, I, I basically I put on a blue coat over like some black pants, French like navy blue, right? <laughs> and I walked around and first of all, like all the, the sort of the operatives, including the, the actually the, some of the people who were, you know, attending, um, basically they were all dressed, you know, they were sort of dressed like professional business people, you know, they didn't look the way they looked seven years ago. And I was the one who looked odd, and I looked odd because I was walking around this political festival by myself. And, and who goes to a political festival alone, you know? I don't know how many of you, I mean, I've gone to the, the communist festivals in Italy and things like that, I and mean, you always go with your friends to have fun. And that's basically what people who go to the National Front do too. I mean, they, you know, they want to hear Marine Le Pen because she's there, uh, but they also want to eat the free food and pick up, you know, they pick up the brochures and things like that. So. I thought that that was a pretty significant visual change in the kinds of people that were actually running the thing and running around this particular festival. So I don't want to suggest that the entire French professional middle class is moving over to the National Front, but I do think there is a, a change that's probably maybe harder to pick up in the numbers of the kinds of people that are actually running that organization. Uh, and I, I think there might be similar issues when you try to pick up in other countries too. The Greek case, I, su I suggest, is probably pretty raw. Um, EU, is it a workable project? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I'm, a, I, I'm going to punt on this and say I'm an analyst, not a... Not a, uh, not a if I were um, an EU parliamentarian, I would say, of course, if I were... Um, um, as a total outsider, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think that it was... I think that... EU has to figure out a way to deal with the issue of how they're going to incorporate national states into a supranational polity. I think they have to, I mean what I find really problematic about EU is in order to become a citizen of EU you have to first become a, a, a citizen of a national, a member state. And I think that's really odd for a country, for an organization that is basically trying to be um, this is um, basically a one Europe kind of place. Um, and um, that's the best answer I can give right now because there's a whole history of, of Europe. And I think 
Europe is now carrying more weight than its founders intended. I don't know if that's helpful or not. Oh, how to make it work? Uh, yeah, if, it, if it's workable, then what makes it work? What makes it tick? What makes it tick? When it ticks? <laughs> I, that's a really... <laughs> I don't, I, I don't want to punt on that, but I really don't... I mean, I don't really... What makes you work is like... A, Just to draw an example, like in the Arab world, they want the Gulf region to work. In yeah. the SARC region, they want the Southeast Asian region. In Asia-Pacific, they want the ASEAN to work. Yeah. Um, so just as a, I mean, just what to draw from the EU that what makes, despite the heterogeneity, what makes the EU function, if it functions? That, I mean, it's an interesting comparison when you actually put it that way, but then I would argue it's not functioning very well, and certainly not functioning in the way that the other areas that, you're, that you mentioned function. And actually, you've just outlined a good comparative project, <laughs> because it is the, it seems to me, and I don't know anything about the regional politics, except in the broadest contours of the places you mentioned, but it seems like me that in a standard comparative politics analysis, we have a dubious case and we have successful cases and what's different and what's the same. Can't I can't give you more than that. But it is a very good question, actually. Uh, so I had one other... Um, the oh, question on the front about the spectrum. Right. Yeah, the spectrum. Yes, I know that Sarkozy was, was sending the Roma out in that summer and, and also um, um, that he was also starting a national identity campaign that didn't work very well. Um, I think this is one of the points that I was actually trying to make about the scrambling of political ideas and, and that basically the center-right and even the left, to a certain extent, are taking over some of these ideas um, from the right parties. But I do think one of the reasons I made the, issue, the point about immigration is one of the things I thought was really interesting when I did my book on this, although there's enormous amounts of literature on immigration. I mean, immigration is a state issue that has to be handled some way or another. In other words, you have to have a policy around immigration. Um, and that's neither a left nor right issue. I mean, what the solution is can be left or right, but it's not an issue that can be left without a policy. Um, and I do think it's interesting that that Sarkozy was, people were saying he was doing that because he wanted to capture those Marine Le Pen voters, but in the end it, it uh, didn't work. But I wouldn't call all center, I wouldn't equate all center-right parties with extreme right, I mean, because center parties have different meanings in the European context. So I, I, that's not maybe not a satisfactory answer, but I, it's the best I can sort of do with what I understand your question to be. Or right now. I mean, we could talk about it for a long time, probably. Well, we have to finish at eight, so I think we have time for three questions, if they are each a question rather than a few questions. And people are very concise. I'm oh, sorry for being so draconian. Uh, the the judge will have to choose from uh, one of his five questions. If you could just wait for the mic. Um, Michael Green from Cornell. Welcome, Professor. I love your accent. Um, a grad school grad from last century. Um, I, I have a bunch. Uh, but the first one is from your graphs. Just one, please. 
I'll keep the two. The first one is um, I'm missing Ireland from your analysis because they're the ones that took the money first or just after Greece, and now they've kind of stepped out. Um, but the second one is are you familiar with uh, James Sheehan's book, uh, Monopoly of Violence? Because, well, basically he talks about um, a number of things, but his opening is sort of the largest anti-war demonstrations in the history of the world occurred just before the 2003 Iraq War here in Europe. Mm-hmm. And then he puts them in the context of the European Union, which is really, I think, to speak to what you're talking about, which is the European Union was just to stop fighting, stop Germany and France from fighting. Um, so the European Union isn't, didn't start out to be economic. It was social, continues to be. Um, but, um, you know, I, I guess I want to put that in the context of aren't... It, isn't it actually a sign of democracy that we're hearing from all these right-wing parties? Um, because you don't actually have much political diversity of opinion in America right now. You've got sort of Fox News against MSNBC, and it's very unnuanced. Uh, yeah, wow. <laughs> that, that's not really a question. I think I was just trying to help you out of the analyst role. Anyway, help me out. I, I'd, like, I'd like to hear about Ireland. Though. Okay, and the g- gentleman just behind him. Hi. Uh, I was just wondering if we could have a bit more on, uh, on the alternative for Germany, the, the, the German party, um, and whether or not you believe... I mean, some people have argued that, to some extent, it's a front for more further right uh, politicians to find a, a political basis in Germany, because, like you said, the past protects, and maybe they're trying to use this as a front. Mm-hmm. Thank you. We've got time for one, one last question. The, the lady just down here. Thank you. Hi. I'm also a current student here and a former Cornellian, a former student of yours. Really? What is that? <laughs> You'll have to... Yeah, politics and culture. Well, yeah. You'll have to introduce yourself. <laughs> but um, anyhow, you, you listed sort of two main, um, as I took them, causes of this sort of uptick in um, these right sort of polit- political parties um, yeah. re-emerging. And one being kind of this... Uh, flow of multiculturalism, immigration, and um, I'm wondering what is kind of the interrelationship between that and um, the crisis, if there is anything. I mean, could are these two independent phenomena that side by side um, were sufficient and necessary causes for mm. for this uptick, or could one have been sufficient enough for the same uptick to occur? Mm-hmm. Okay, if you could kind of debunk that. Three, um, okay, let me, I'm going to skip Ireland for the moment and just say one thing. When they were those anti-war demonstrations in the summer of of, um, 2003, Habermas and uh, had the Intellectuals Manifesto and he got people like Jacques Derrida and Umberto Eco in Italy and and they, they basically argued that the demonstrations in the street, this also speaks to your question, were a way of making Europeans solidaristic and they were being solidaristic against the war in Iraq and lots of people participated in those and also against the United States and I remember at the time thinking oh this is a nice way to get European solidarity to sort of start attacking the United States (laughs) very odd on World War II playing itself out in in odd ways but it was a moment of of solidarity the second thing that happened I don't know if it happened I can't remember if it happened in the summer of 2003 or not but it really struck me again as one of these European moments and noticed they were all you know crisis uh, different kinds of crisis 
But when was the London subway bombings? What year was 2005. that? 2005. 2005, okay. And I was um, in Stockholm. There was actually a, a conference that I was at. And, and one of the things that happened there was, um, and I was watching Swedish television, a couple of days after the bombings, there was a moment, they, they, Blair, I guess, and some European leaders declared a moment of silence across Europe. Everybody's supposed to have their television on and watch this silence in solidarity with the citizens of Britain. And I thought to myself at that time, like the Iraq war demonstration, here you are getting European solidarity against something that's basically, you know, an attack. I mean, it is an attack. There's no other way to... So that's kind of like a negative way. I mean, you know, there's the argument, one argument about identities is you... You, you really congeal your identities or, or when you are in, when you have an external enemy to, uh, and and certainly um, this the, you know the, that's what I the dynamic I saw going on there I thought it was a kind of sad dynamic because I thought it was a negative affirmation rather than a positive affirmation um, you said something about democracy also that I wanted to say yes they are getting elected people are elected these are all democratic these have democratic institutions and people are elected um, and if the right wing parties get elected that's it that's what we we are supposedly in a democracy in these countries uh, and I, I think that the European institutions which are very you know the na national institutions are extremely mature, and um, that's one of the reasons why um, I think it'll be interesting. That's interesting to see how the careers of some of these politicians play themselves out. But the point is, if Marine Le Pen or if Wilders sufficiently moves themselves to the center right and they get elected, then you know it's a democracy. You know, <laughs> um, and and I think what we I have no time to talk about now, and I know less about or marginally more about than I know than I can talk about Ireland is what's going on in Eastern Europe, which I think is another a very interesting case. Um, Ireland I don't really have much to say about, in part because they, um, and maybe I should think more about it, because they've never really had a, a, a right movement, although they did have one of these elections that had a big shift around the same um, time as the elections that I put up, but it wasn't a, a move to the, the right, basically. <laughs> Uh, so I'm going to have to leave your uh, the alternative for that is an interesting possibility. Who asked me about Germany? I didn't just, okay. just up at the back. Uh, um, it's an interesting possibility. I'll have to think more about it um, and learn a little bit more about the case. Uh, I'm actually the cases I'm most interested in now are Hungary, Greece, and then the France and Netherlands one. But it is interesting. But I think I. Still kind of, I still think until the whole World War II generation has died out, including those people who came of age in the 1950s, you still have a, a fairly protective mechanism. Uh, I'm not sure I got the last question about multiculturalism and the crisis, um, but I, I, think that it, I think that probably um, the issue about multiculturalism, this person just pointed out about Sarkozy sending the Roma out of France, and, um, and I, I, I think that, you know, I don't think that, that immigration alone, or immigration as has now become a discussion of integration, is sufficient to get any of these parties 
have the kind of success, and I put quotes around success, that we see occurring. Now this Greek party is interesting because it's, it, you know, it's running around with neo-Nazi symbols and it's violently anti-immigrant. But I think that within the sort of core of, of Western Europe, um, this, this may sound like I'm punting it, but there are many more, um, you know, the toleration is much more of an of a ingrained kind of social value. Um, than um, non-toleration. <laughs> um, so I think that the crisis is really key, and I, I think that polit pol politicians are strategic, and I don't. And I think that they are take the crisis is their moment, or else they wouldn't be talking the way they're talking. Um, and that's my, I guess, my answer to that question. Well, I have just two 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 things to do to wrap up. The first is to tell you a little bit about our next event, which is on the 11th of March. And it's, 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 I think it's a fantastic event. It's the Crisis of European Democracy. We'll have our own Sarah Hobbelt speaking, but along with James Tilly from Oxford, there'll be Klaus Tavros from Am Amsterdam and Catherine de Vries, also from Oxford, as well as Mark Franklin. So really some, really some of the most, in my view, some of the most interesting political scientists are going to be discussing really the democratic accountability of the European Union. The last thing I have to do is to, uh, to thank Professor Mabel Berezan for a really uh, wide-ranging, varied, and fan fantastic uh, talk. I, I learned a lot from it, and you can see how, the, how, how everyone's right to the very end. Thank you very much.